Upcoming on the Agony Column podcast, William Gibson looks at the future of cyberspace. Cyberspace is starting to become our here, whereas 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was still our there. And examines the present as a science fiction vision from the past. The future had already arrived, but there wasn't really enough of it to go around. There's plenty of future to go around now, coming on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. It's not like I'm using, Case heard someone say as he shouldered his way through the crowd around the door of the chat. It's like my body's developed this massive drug deficiency. It was a sprawl voice and a sprawl joke. The Chatsubo was a bar for professional expatriates. You could drink there for a week and never hear two words in Japanese. William Gibson is the author of the novel Neuromancer, which helped define the Internet as we know today. He created the word cyberspace and is one of the originators of the cyberpunk genre of science fiction. His new novel is Spook Country. Welcome to the program, Bill. Hey, well, thank you. Glad to be here. Bill, one of the things that interests me is that at the core of this novel, it's hiding behind it, overshadowing it, is 9-11 in New York. And I'm wondering if you'd tell me why that is. Well, it, it, is, it is because it is. It, it, it is because I've, you know, writing a novel like this is, for, for me, is sort of an attempt to invite the zeitgeist in for tea. And the zeitgeist has, has a lot of 9-11 subtext going on, or, or so it seemed to me when when I had it in, had it in for tea. I think 9-11 was what the characters in my previous set of novels called a nodal point. Nodal point. Well, that's an interesting expression because the main character in, in this book, Hollis, is, has, is a woman who's been hired to write for a magazine that doesn't yet exist called Node. And that, there's, that suggests a kind of a certain theme, the idea of nodes a certain theme of disconnects and, and abstractions. It probably, it, it could, although I don't have any, like, thematic, conscious thematic mechanism when, you know, when I work. It's not like I know something and I'm trying to express it to you in fiction. It's like I'm writing fiction to try to, not even to try to figure something out, but to, I don't know, to, I'm writing fiction to trick the world into interrogating my material for me in a way that I will find uh, useful or, and, and enjoyable. So I'm, I'm a non-didactic practitioner. I, I don't have, I don't even really have an expressed political philosophy the way most people do. I'm, I'm explored. My function, I feel like my function is exploratory. I, I enjoy entertaining people while, while I'm exploring, and that's, you know, and it's sort of essential. Otherwise, they'd have no reason for, no reason for turning up. Well, tell us a little bit about this, your current exploration in Spook Country. It, it's a fascinating collection of characters who slowly circle around and come together. When you created this, did you know who everybody was in the book? I didn't know who. When I started it, the creation occur, The creation occurs in, in process. It, it isn't as though I'm standing back from the table knitting my brow thinking, yes, there will be a 30-something former rock star, and yes, there will be a uh, there will be a, a Cuban-Chinese ex-KGB uh, voodooist. It's what it is. I sit, you know, the actual process is I sit down and the screen is blank. I sit down on day one and the screen is blank and I have no idea. 
no, zero, no idea what the novel, what the novel is going to be. And that, usually the whole day's like that, and then I'm unhappy, and this goes on for weeks. And then gradually through turning up and putting my butt in the chair and, and moving my fingers on, on the keyboard in spite of feeling totally uninspired, something will start to come through. And it's usually not, it's usually not character as character, but it's, it's viewpoint. It's usually viewpoint. It's just like views, views of a scene. And, uh, but I don't know who's seeing it. And my job then becomes to let this process help, let me get out of my own way and let the process ex start to express, express who the character is. And with this book, the beginning of the book originally was what became, in the end, the second chapter, which is the first Tito point of view chapter. And I had about 15 or 20 pages of that for about six months, and that was all I had, and there was no Tito in it. It was just this disembodied, ghostly viewpoint drifting around Lafayette and Canal in, in this sort of foggy winter foggy winter weather, recording architectural and sensory sensory impressions. And somehow, I have no idea how Tito emerged from that. And then Hollis, Hollis emerged from a parallel attempt to, to start, another, start another thread. And I actually, I was in more or less the room she was in, in the hotel she's in in the book. The one time I've been there, uh, early in the morning when there was this freak windstorm along Sunset Strip, which is described in the book. And it was the freak, the memory of the freak windstorm somehow evoked the beginning of the character. Milgram, the third point of view character, didn't come in until much later, and at first I, I only had the two threads, but the two threads weren't working. They weren't. They were, it it just was. They it wasn't. The synergy wasn't. Synergy wasn't going on. And one day I sat down and attempted. Attempted this. Uh, tried an experiment where I, I had two guys in, secretly invading Tito's room because I'd already established Tito at that point and one of those two guys became became Milgram and the other the other became Brown and <clears throat> that's actually how I that's actually how it worked the the part of me that's able to write a novel is not a part of me that I have any any real conscious access to and the the part of me I have conscious access to really has to be kept away from the text at all costs because the conscious part of me is is really not very good not very good with things with things novelistic uh, I, it's like I just have to get out of my own way I can't let my superego come in and start second second guessing what for me is has always been a, a, a mysterious and, and highly intuitive process. One of the things I noticed in this book, right off the bat, was the Mongolian death worm and, and an interest in a lot of material I've seen in a magazine called The Fortean Times. Yeah. And, and I really <laughs> like The Fortean Times because it, it presents a, a, an odd view of the news and, and of the world around us that reminds me of science fiction in a way of externalizing things that are within us. And I, I, you seem to have an interest in that as well. Well, I've been, I think, I could, I could argue that, that I myself have been a Fortean since I was about 12 years old, which was when, when Ace Books reprinted the, the books of Charles Fort. Boy, the orange one? The little orange paperback. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I got that same one. <laughs> yeah, and and those blew those utterly blew my mind. But I got them knowing, I bought them at the bus station in my hometown, already knowing 
that they had been extremely in influential on the course of, of science fiction. And I knew that from reading, reading histories, histories of SF, like Fort was a super influential writer, particularly for people who, who were working in the 1940, in the 1940s. And then later I got, I got Damon Knight's really excellent uh, biography of Charles Fort, which at this point may still be the only biography of, of Charles Fort. And, and Knight really, really did, really did a great job there. But I've been like, re I've been reading, going back to Fort on and off all my life. And I take his, I actually, you know, I really take his philosophy quite, quite seriously. His, his way of, way of interrogating our, uh, his way of interrogating the interrogation of what he probably would, would have refused to call reality. Tell us a little bit about this interrogation of reality. Well, I think I'm not very good with Fort quotes. I used to used to know them a bit better, but he uh, he said, and he once said, in effect, that that he didn't believe that beliefs were adequate adequate to believe in. <laughs> He said, "As soon as people, as soon as people believe in something, he started, he started to doubt it." I'm actually not doing a, not doing a very good, good job with that. But I'm, I'm not the best person to, to, try to, try to explain Fort. But I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Fortean times, and, and have been a, it's one of. Really, it's one of three magazines that I, the three magazines that I read every month, and and cover to cover to cover are for Tan Times, Giant Robot, and um, and juxtapose the the movement of the low the magazine of the lowbrow art art movement. And and that's become it. Like the internet, I used to spend hundreds of dollars a month on on magazines, uh, using them as novelty aggregators. But the only three that have have stuck are Fortan Times, Giant Robot, and Juxtapose. And I get the the rest of my novelty aggregation is, is taken taken care of by the World Wide Web. This is an interesting phrase, novelty aggregation. Could you explain it? Well, magazines, m magazines particularly, are novel. I've, I think are, the real business is is aggregating novelty. Like a, you, you, a magazine editor hires people or assigns people to go out, go out and look for novel things. Like if your magazine isn't reporting novel, isn't reporting novelty, it's dull. So the the magazine with the highest aggregation of novelty in its con content is the smartest magazine. That you know, it's it's it, of a certain kind of magazine, like uh, not academic journals, but popular popular magazines are about novelty, and the more the more unnovel their content is, the the less fun they are. So I always used I always used high novelty value magazines as kind of as a, a stimulant drug in a way. Like I'd keep I'd buy a hundred dollars worth of interesting magazines and keep them beside the computer before I had a web connection. And and when the text stopped, I'd just start flipping flipping through them, and and stuff would start migrating. Migrating from the magazines into the into the narrative and keep the keep the narrative going. Now I do it with, you know. Now I do it with the web. It's like Google replaced Google and YouTube replaced that that stack of magazines. This idea of magazines as novelty aggregators, of course, plays into into your new novel, 
as your main character is working for a magazine called Node. And she's been asked to look into something called uh, locative art. And, and I think this is a really fascinating concept. Could you describe it? And, and is it real? Is there, it, it, does that work yet? It doesn't. I think this might be one of your imaginative leaps. Mm, I think you could do it, actually. I think it's been the locative art that I've described. I don't see why you, you couldn't do it. I think you could go to go to Future Shop and maybe one specialist computer stuff store and put something put something like that put something like that together what i've described is is most often referred to in in vr circles as blended reality it's a system a system in which you can see the you see the physical world but you see a, you see virtual objects or virtual actors as if they were in the physical world and this can be done this is can be done in the lab at least and uh, you know skilled home practitioner could probably do it in the garage but i'm proposing in my novel i'm i'm proposing linking that with with the gps grid so that people can people can place virtual objects virtual artworks anywhere they want on the gps grid and they'll stay there as long as the server is up and you can see them there only if you go there but only if you have the url that gets you gets you in to the server but if you have the url and you have the right viewing equipment you can you can go to a specific physical location which is the only place you can see this thing and you could you can walk around it and check it out check it out from from every angle and enjoy it but there wouldn't be any way to there wouldn't be any way to take it home but you know, I won't go that far. I mean, there probably would be some way to, there probably would be some way to record it. But it's not, it's it's not much of a leap at all. In, it's it's in, an, an ephemeral experience. Well, it's ephemeral in. I, I don't know. It's it's ephemeral if you go away and never go back. But but if you passed it every day, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that ephemeral. If it was on the, you know the doorstep of your apartment you had to kind of walk through it every day it it would be it would become a permanent thing it's a it's uh, every time i've tried to extrapolate f- just for myself an an evolved version of that just like i kind of freeze up it gets very strange very 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 quickly trying to Im- imagine a character interacting in a in a fully evolved version of that like a city that's absolutely full of that stuff where everybody everybody is augmented to re, to be in blended reality all the time and i would imagine that it seems to me that that that's i would guess that that's the evolutionary Direction of interface design really is is blended reality all the time. You use a word that I find really interesting, everting, evert. Yeah, and it starts out as a great joke when, when yeah. a French woman's trying to say everything, and she say, says everting. Uh, tell us a little bit about that concept. Well, people who have averted lips have those those lips that that. Look like their mouth is about to turn turn inside out, but I'm see what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting with that that little section in the book where they stop and have a chat about cyberspace today is that cyberspace is starting to become our here, whereas. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was still our there. And like here and there are, I think, are in process of swapping. Like 15 or 20 years ago, if you were, if you were doing something that, that you could have described as, as 
something you were doing in cyberspace, it was kind of special, and you were kind of special, and and there wasn't there wasn't the future had already arrived, but there there wasn't really enough of it to go around. So so it was cyberspace was the there, and and the physical world, the non-digital was the here. In the everting of cyberspace, that's reversed, and it's permanently. I think it's it's permanently reversed, and that which is without connectivity has become the there, and and what we used to call cyberspace has become increasingly the here. But I don't think we'll be calling it cyberspace much longer because I don't think we'll be uh, I don't think we'll we'll be using cyber very much as a prefix. And I don't think we'll be using the word digital anymore. Digital is going to go the way of electric. Electrics, not as a descriptor, is not something you see on too many packages these days. Electric toothbrush, yes. Electric iPod, no. And the assumption is that everything's electric anyway. And the assumption pretty shortly will be that everything is digital anyway. To some, to some extent. One of the, the great images of this book is, is uh, of Archie Architecturus, the giant yes. squid. I have to ask, is that a nod to the, the pre-internet internet protocol of Archie? Was old? No, I'm, I'm like woefully ignorant of the, the real history of, of the internet and computing. But you, I just like squids. And I think I wrote. I was writing that around the time that they got that first footage of of a first video footage of a giant squid off this in Japan. Yeah. Oh boy, that was fantastic footage. One thing that that you talk about in here a a few times, and and this leads on naturally from what we're talking about before, is experiencing life as a as a video game. It, It. at one point, um, you have uh, Hollis imagining uh, uh, her her boss, uh, Bajand. Uh, she imagined him watching this on the screen in his office, the world as a video game. And we seem to be mm-hmm. heading more and more in that direction where when we describe life, sometimes we'll describe it as a series of challenges that you might occur in a video game. Well, I think we might have been doing something like that. All along, though, I don't know. Video video games are video games are models of our reality. In order to work, they have, they have to be to some extent mimetic. That they have to be representations of of something we've actually we've actually exper- experienced in life. So if people use them. If when people, when we use video games metaphorically, I don't think there's anything. <clears throat> there's there's nothing specifically about video games. In that, I seems to me. I mean, it, it's like describing describing life in in terms of a in terms of a myth or in terms of chess. Which is not. It's like think of all the chess metaphors in, in in our culture. That's not not so different. And we we've been doing that for thousands of years. The invisible and ghosts and and layers of of semi invisible things are, are haunt this novel and, and permeate it. You have a, a great phrase in here. That intelligence is advertising turned inside out. Could you talk a little bit about the the, the way the invisible layers that that surround us, and, and both spiritually because we have Tito with his saints and, and uh, his voodoo gods, and then we have Hollis with her VR glasses, and they're not so different, are they? No, they they resonate. They resonate off, off one another. 
but that's why that's why you found them there because they they resonated they resonated for me when i when i put them together i mean all of creativity for me is is almost entirely about assembling disparate putting together disparate things and it's about it's a it's about collage, really, but the the collage doesn't have to be physical. It can it can take place in in one's in one's head. Uh, when when the late Damon Knight would teach, not, pardon me, when the late Avram Davidson would teach teach writing, one of the exercises he had was that he would take a he'd take a a cup and put little slips of paper, little narrow little narrow slips of paper that he cut from a page he'd typed into the into the thing and he'd pass it around and he'd make everybody everyone every student would take three and you then had to write a story that combined these three crazily disparate elements. When I when I read about him doing that I thought that was a, like a brilliant exercise and it's very, very close to Close to how I work, it's like where my my stuff comes from. The juxtaposition, the deliberate juxtaposition of highly unlikely, highly unlikely material, and the resulting resonance is, I think, what what I feel. You know, when I'm working, is like that. It's alive. It's what it's what makes it. You know, if it stops, if the resonance dies, I know that something. I know that something's wrong. This is a very funny book, in in a very low key manner. And one of my favorite characters for for the humorous aspects of this is Mr. Brown, mm-hmm. who is this. In a way, it's surprising that I found him funny because he's a a. a bundle of frustrated violence in, in many ways. But but that frustration is, is really rather humorous, almost uh, Wile E. Coyote-like. Yeah, he's a satirical, he's a satirical figure. But the, re- the reason he works is, he's not, I, the reason he works is there are people like that around. <laughs> if, if there weren't, it wouldn't, if there weren't, it wouldn't be funny. Like satire is no good at all unless it's hitting it's hitting an actual it's hitting an actual target and everything everything that that brown believes and expresses in well i don't know everything he believes but everything he expresses in the novel is something that that i found i found someone expressing somewhere on the internet and i won't won't go into where where I went, where I went fishing for bits of brown, but there was like like an ocean of it, really. I just had to, I just had to pick and choose that that whole business about the Frankfurt School. When you know they're, when they're having when he and Milgram are having their hot dogs, that's like right out of the a comment thread on somebody's blog, and they weren't being funny. And <laughs> in the context I found it in, it wasn't funny. And I went, uh-huh, I'm going to make use of you, and you'll never know. So, There's a fascinating event that that Brown refers to and that, that t- kind of triggers off parts of this novel, and it's something that should have boggled people's minds, and instead it went unnoticed. And this is the transfer of billions of dollars of cash out of New York and into Iraq. Could you talk about that? Well, it was interesting. I have a a friend who I sank in the back of the back of the book who's a kind of eccentric eccentric journalist. And and he had he sent me when the initial Reuters story about that transfer, which was very, very early, and just kind of blipped across the screen, just like, and I, I missed it in my own scan of the news, but he highlighted and sent it, sent it to me, 
And I copied it to, I copied to Word, you know, I copied it to, I copied it to a Word file. And it eventually, eventually found its, found its way into the book. But everyone had forgot, most people had, had never noticed the original story. And everyone had forgotten it. And then sometime last year, it suddenly came back. And for most people, that was the first time they, was the first time they knew about it. But I had already uh, given it a, its its place in in my book. So I was just like, "Thank you. This is great." <laughs> like whoever whoever decided that this was a you know this was worth paying some paying some attention to. So it really became a meme. But when I put it into the book, it. It wasn't. It hadn't yet become a meme, and I was entertaining the idea of putting a little afterward and saying, you know, believe it or not, that actually happened. <laughs> they actually did do that, but that would have been relatively weak. Now that it's a meme and everybody sort of knows, it's like much, much better for much, much better for for my book because it's a you know, it's like punch, it becomes better punchline material. This is something you're noted for doing and have done with your science fiction is to um, essentially, to a certain extent, predict the future or to, to anticipate the future. And, and uh, one thing about science fiction that, that's appealing is the, the world we live in is really, really complicated and nobody can ever hope to understand everything. And I think one of, for me at least, one of the appeals of science fiction is it allows us to when we read a science fiction novel about a kind of technology that's advanced, it allows us a way to wrap our brains around the present mm-hmm. while experiencing it as the future in something kind yeah. of odd. Increasingly, I think it gives us, it provides the oven mitts that we need to handle the, the ominously white-hot object that, that our future may, may have become. But I've always thought that that was what science fiction was for. I mean, I, I never had any illusions about ever. And maybe when I was reading science fiction when I was 14 years old, I, I thought they might be predicting the future. I know I sort of felt like I wanted to immigrate to the future. And, you know, I would have liked to live in... When I was 14 years old, I w- would have liked to immigrate to New York as seen in... Alfred Bester's The Demolished Man. <laughs> it's very appealing. But what I didn't understand then in the 60s, reading reading Bester's 1950s novel, is that what I was being drawn to was 1950s Manhattan, which was already gone. And it wasn't any future Manhattan. It was Bester's 50s hipster Madison Avenue ad man in incredibly like like vibrant New York which is that was what was pulling me it wasn't the future it was it was 50s Manhattan as seen through the through the eyes of this extremely urbane funny funny man and and that was the real that was the real pull I, I don't think I ever wanted to immigrate to uh, the future of Isaac Asimov's robot books or anything like just no, no draw, no draw at all. By so, by the time I was in my mid twenties and had a degree in English, and I was like, like wondering, wondering if it, you know, might not be worth trying writing some writing some science fiction. It was really firmly, like I firmly understood that science fiction is never about the future. I knew that 1984 was about 1948. Like I'd been I'd been freed from a lot of parochial assumptions that had come along with having science fiction as my native literary culture which it certainly which it certainly was but by the time I started to write it I was a a differently self-aware practitioner I sort or I was determined to be a differently self-aware practitioner and I think I've I think I've stuck with that. When I started to write science fiction, I looked at what was going on in like in in the 1977 from about 1977 to 1981 I was like looking at at 
genre SF and what was being published. And the closest thing I could find to compare it to was country music, the Nashville country music industry. It had become like it was like Nashville country, and I wanted I wanted Willie Nelson. I I didn't want Nashville country. Like I had known, I had known the the uh, you know the the eerie white heat of of SF in the '60s when when Michael Moorcock was editing New Worlds and Ballard was writing and Delaney Delaney was writing and there was this this uh, really like rocking core to the core to the thing. But by 1977, which was a very exciting year culturally everywhere but science fiction, science fiction had become an industry. It had become an industry that, that moved units in the way that Nashville is an industry that moved units, moves units. And, and I didn't want to do, I had no, you know, I didn't mind moving some units, but... I knew I wasn't going to do it that way. Your new book and, and pattern recognition both are, are set in the current day or the recent past, actually. And, and one of the things you do quite well is to bring out the science fiction textures of the present. I mean, there's lots of uh, call-outs in this book where somebody will, will actually say that a building looks like something out of science fiction. Yeah. Well, if... If you if you went into a, if you'd gone into a New York publisher's office in 1981 and and pitched them pitched them a novel set in a world in which uh, a sexually contagious there was a sexually contagious disease that that would terminally destroy the human immune system and it was it was Still spreading, still spreading around the world, while simultaneously, internal combustion and probably other other human technological factors as well have started a, a catastrophic shift in in Earth's climate, and 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 they would and they would have shown you the door. Actually, they would have probably called security, because what you're describing just couldn't is like to what you're describing is the world today, and it's just hopelessly overloaded for a science fiction novel. Although interestingly, someone did predict it. Someone did come close to predict it. I think John Bruner's *The Sheep Look Up* is is a brilliant, uh, extraordinary, and, and unique in presenting a future it's not it's not exactly our future but it's as complex as our our present it's like terrifically complex and he had to use he had to use the the structure of dos pasos usa to to do it these little fragments are jumping all over the world very quickly well we live, in, as you say, it, we're living kind of in in a a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not kind of. We're living in it. We're we're living in it. We really are. We live. We're living in a set of overlapping scenarios. Any one of which could easily have served as the plot driver for a science fiction novel of the nineteen eighties. And an even or even uh, Orwell, 1984. We, I mean, we're in 1984, and we're just the only kind of exciting, the most exciting part of 1984 is is the the torture scenes, and we've just barely got those two years ago, 20 years too late. Well, the Orwell already had them. I think 1980, 1984 is about 1948, the year in in which it was written. And Orwell didn't really have to make anything up. Because he had he had Hitler and Stalin as as models. It's he was he did a great job of the conceit of this is your this is your future, but 
when Orwell was like, you know, the, for Orwell, the torture was a done deal. They had already done it, and worse. You, well, ju you just had to, to do that shift and say, hey, it's actually in the future, so you can come on, you can bear to look at it because I'm telling you a fable about the future. I believe, actually, he wanted to title it 1948, and his publisher said, no, no, and no. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's interesting. That's, that's interesting. He used to, uh, he was briefly, probably, I think, before 1948, he, he, was, a, a, he was published by Victor Golantz, and they had always been in these, these wonderfully grotty little offices in, in Henrietta Street by Covent Garden. And they were my publisher when I first started publishing in England. And whenever I'd go there, I'd kind of put my hand all over this big doorknob, thinking like somewhere I was touching something that George had, George had touched. Your, your new novel is very much about current day America. And one of the things, there's a phrase you have in here that I think is just so scarily true, a cold civil war. Yeah. Well, that phrase is the thing that's, it is a scary phrase, but, but to, put it, to put it in context, it's, it's a description generated by someone who by virtue of his culture, is a, a criminologist. Anyone who grows up, anyone who's grown up in a communist country, and, and this, this is a Cuban we're talking about. So this is a Cuban, and he's grown up, he's grown up with the Russians in Cuba, and then the, with the Soviets in Cuba, and then the Soviets went away, then the Soviet Union vanished, but he's still, and he was still in Cuba living <clears throat> living under a communist government. Anyone who has that experience has the point of view of a criminologist, someone looking at a government that's completely closed, completely opaque, completely secretive, lies all the time. That's what he's, that's what he's come up with. So what I think is interesting about Alejandro's take on politics in the United States is that he's a he's a criminologist and so he makes that's what it looks like to him because it doesn't say this in the text but they're secretive they lie all the time you can't you can't figure out what they're really doing it's like that was what made that funny for me is that it's his take if somebody else had said it it would it would be it would resonate it would resonate Different, differently. You also talk a, a, a bit about, you know, the, how the, the terrorists have actually won because we are effectively terrorized. Well, we're doing, you know, we're, we're, doing, their, we're doing their work for them. And a fabulous um, job we've done that. As well, yeah, we're doing, a fa we're, do, we're doing a, I can't, short of, you know, strafing, strafing Mecca, I can't. I can't think of. I can't think of what we could do that would would make you know make them happier. You know, there's a, a congressman from California who's running for president who's proposing just that: bombing Mecca. That'd be good. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's that I get depressed. It, it just seems like one of the things that bothers me about that is that I know, I know from some of my Let's sort of forays into corporate futurology and, and working, you know, working with, with the global business network and, and spinning, spinning scenarios and sometimes through that doing things with, with govern, U.S. government entities of one, one kind and another. I know that there were people, like when 9-11 happened, you know, on 9-11 in, in all my... In emotional pain and confusion, I comforted myself thinking specifically of several people I, I'd met over, over the years who I knew were still part of the part of the the defense world 
And I thought, okay, I know. Those guys know what to do. They, they understand asymmetrical warfare. They, they, they understand the new paradigm. They understand the net war. They know what this is about. They, they know what we mustn't do. You know, they, they know that... All the things we did? Yeah, yeah. They know what we mustn't do. Well, what I didn't know was that all those guys were going to be... Those guys were going to be 86 for having unpopular unpopular opinions, you know. They're just like swept, swept, under, swept under the table. And everything, everything they would have, everything they would have recommended, wasn't wasn't done. And and the opposite, the opposite was done as far as I know in in every case. Just amazing. Could you talk a little bit about your forays into corporate futurology? This is interesting. I didn't know you've actually worked for corporations to help them predict the future, a la Faith well, Popcorn. Not work. No, I've never done it. I've never done it as a salaried. I've never done it as a as a salaried thing. I've done it as a sort of. I've done it as a as a volunteer, and Stuart Brand, who founded the the Whole Earth Catalog, and Kevin Kelly, who founded Wired, and a couple of other a couple of other people, mostly around the Bay Area, about. 15, maybe 15 years ago, founded something called the, the Global Business Network. And they invited people to be, they invite a lot of people to become, a, a kind of very diverse group of people to become members. Peter, Brian Eno and Peter Gabriel uh, are members. So they got, you know, they, they got like outside the box, outside the box people. But also a lot, there were a lot, a lot of the members were, were, People with experience in in corporate scenario generation, and the members, well, you know, what's in it? What was in it for the members was was just like exposure to like like really really interesting, interesting people, interesting people, and interesting ideas. I was never very active. I was like, we're kind of woefully inactive in it, really. But I, I went to a I went to a couple of their, I went to a couple of their their weekends they would have, and and the activity, the the GBN organization was supported by corporations, paying to send their in-house futurists to have the the GBN experience, and the rest of us were came along as as volunteers. And so I got to see some great. I got to see some great things. I got to go. I got to go to the world headquarters of Visa once, which you know, no one, very few people seem to know where that is, and that's a very good thing. And I met the FBI's liaison the same day. I got to meet the FBI's liaison with the Russian Federation's equivalent of the of the FBI. And. And hear what you know their long-term plans were vis-a-vis crime in the in the former Soviet Union, uh, particularly at a time when like 99% of everything happening in the former Soviet Union was crime. That was that was interesting. I got to see the room in Los Angeles where the guys sit who control all the traffic lights in L.A. with using closed-circuit television. There's a room in City Hall, just amazing, wow. amazing, and. Uh, I got to meet some, you know, far-sighted, uh, really, really far-sighted Pentagon, Pentagon types. Bruce Sterling was much more active. GBN is no longer really fully active. They sort of retired it a couple, of, a couple of years ago. But Bruce used to be like, like wildly active in it because he's he's like more. He's got the per, he's got the personality for it. And I remember when the the first time the Pentagon. The Pentagon sent people to a, a GBN event. I wasn't there, but Bruce was there, and he he came back and he said, uh, he said it's amazing. And I said, did they get along? And he said it was like watching spiders mating. This must have been shortly after uh, the actual formation of the cyberpunk genre. Mm, a couple of years. I'm not really sure. I would not have. It's I'm not much of a joiner. 
And Stuart Brand asked me if I would join this thing. And I said no, but I didn't say no strongly enough to, to keep Stuart Brand from putting me on putting me on the mailing list. <laughs> He's a, a strong-minded individual. And and then afterward, I was like really, I was really grateful to him for having having done that because I had some some remarkable experiences, and quite a lot of it found it has one way or another found its way, found its way into my work. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the Austin, Texas? I think it was Austin, Texas, wasn't it, where you and uh, Bruce Sterling and Rudy Rucker, and I believe John Shirley, hosted a, a panel at the science fiction convention. You know, I scarcely, I scarcely remember that. What I remember about that, I think it was that convention, was that I read uh, maybe the first chapter of Neuromancer to about 10 people, all of us, for some reason, sitting on the floor somewhere. I remember sitting on the floor with my back against the wall, reading this thing in, 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 a, in an anxiety, you know, acute anxiety, because no one had, no one had ever, you know, no one had ever seen any of it. And I, I wasn't that far into writing it. And uh, I finished it, and there was this kind of like, Pin dro- you could hear a pin drop saying, like people were just sitting there, where we, you know, there were some mouths hanging open, and it was like, okay, this is like, this is, there's something going on with this material. It, you know, maybe I'm doing, maybe I'm doing something right. But the, uh, yeah, no, the cyberpunk, the stuff like the cyberpunk panel, I've literally forgotten. I mean, I was probably drunk. Uh, it, it or wanting to be, it will. None of that was exciting for me as it it was for the the other guys. I think probably because I was older and I'd been through, I'd been through 1967, and I knew when the journalists and the academics turned up with a label to put on you that it actually meant your party was starting to be over. So I was really not happy when cyberpunk reared its ugly head because it came from outside. I think it was actually, it was Dozois' coining. And he borrowed it. I know he borrowed it from someone else's, the title of someone else's or much earlier short story. But he applied it to us. And Gardner is like the most benevolent of men. And he meant no harm. But I just saw it in broader terms as the it, it's like a, an editorial application from outside of a label that is going to, as soon as it's applied, it's going to start to limit the possibilities of the phenomena. And, and Bruce loved... Bruce loved the, the mechanism of, of uh, propagation of sort of revolutionary material. He sort of like he really liked all that. He liked manifestos. And he liked he liked it. He, he just he loved doing that. It's it's sort of his I think his natural his natural mode and it wasn't my na- it wasn't my natural mode and and really never never has been. So I kind of by the time that panel was happening, I don't know. I imagine I was secretly a little embarrassed. Maybe not that secretly. I was just like, I'll see you in the bar. So either either I wasn't there or I'd forgotten about it. In your new book, there's one thing I have to ask about. There's a book about uh, messianic cults that Milgram carries around. And is this a real book? Mm-hmm. And how many of these cults are, in fact, real? Everyone. Uh, <clears throat> everyone and I have like developed this like tragic. Actually, I have to have it written on the back of my backpack. I've developed this tragic and inexplicable mental block against remembering the name of the author of the book. But fortunately, I can. I've now learned to recall the the name of the book, and it's called Pursuit of the Millennium. And it was it was widely read in. 
think it was published in 1967 and, and quite quite widely read and it's a, it's just an absolutely brilliant it's an absolutely brilliant book and Milgram did not initially when he appeared he, he first appeared for me did not have a copy of it in his pocket because I hadn't read it and I happened to go to New York to do a bit of of uh, see friends and do a bit of of research on the ground, mostly down on Lafayette, you know, Lafayette, do more, see what the current state of Lafayette Canal. And a f friend of mine I, I went to have dinner with said, have you ever read this? And I said, no. And he said, oh, you have to. It's fabulous. I just got this copy for nothing off a of barrow. Take it with you. So I know oh, I'm busy writing a book. I don't want to read anything. So I took it back to my room and I thought, read the first page and went, oh, this is unbelievably great. And by the time I got home, I was just like deep, deep, deep into it. And I somehow knew that, that it was just totally for Milgram. And the, the material was so strangely and interestingly resonant with, with the world the world of the book, that it was, it was just a godsend. It was really, really a good... Uh, Really, really good thing. And then a very strange thing, a strange thing further that happened was when when I wrote, when I was writing uh, Big End, as I call him, although my wife argues, it's a Belgian name, and my wife argues that it would be like Béjean, but I don't know. I, I have no French, really, so I, I don't want to pretend to. And Big End is funny in English. So when I wrote Big End's Wikipedia entry, Sort of out of nowhere, came. I actually when I read Biggin's Wikipedia entry. I just read a, a a new history of the the Situationist International in in France in the in the in the 60s, and I discovered to my delight that Biggin's mother had been, if not a Situationist, she'd been sleeping with the the Situationists. And then I, I called up my friend in New York who, who'd given me that book, and I said, you know, it's just like I, Biggin's mother was tight with the, the situa situationists, and, I, and, and my other character always has a copy of Pursuit of the Millennium in, his, in his, his pocket. And my friend told me that Pursuit of the Millennium was the lifelong absolute favorite book of Guy Debord, who was, of course, the, the mastermind of the, the whole Situationist. Tell us a little bit about the Situationists. They're, they're an interesting group, aren't they? Well, I'm not the guy to do it. it it's, I, wish I, I wish I had some kind of cogent little, little rap on, on Situationism, but I, I don't. They were they're the, the most shadowy and odd and and perhaps inadvertently comical revolutionary group that that I that I know of. They were so they were so pure that in the end there was only one of them. <laughs> the, the purging the purging among situationists was was swift and swift indeed. And I think that a lot of Bruce Bruce Sterling's uh, more comical, more deliberately comical posturings as the the Pope of cyberpunk were in in gleeful imitation of of situationism, uh, but he, he was also having fun because he knew that there weren't that many people in in the world of science fiction who would get the get the joke. Can you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on I'm working on physically surviving this this bloody book tour, and I'm I'm working on letting letting the the uh, thousand thousand interviews of of the of this book tour interrogate Spook Country in in a way that will will bring me to whatever is what next is what's next because I I've. I've I've learned to actually view the book tours that way. It makes it. I finally found a way to make it make them work for me, because it tends to somewhere out on the book tour, one way or another, uh, I'll get the first inkling of what the next 
what the next book will be. We've been speaking with William Gibson. His new book is Spook Country. Thank you for joining me, Bill. Thank you. As an appendix to this Agony Column interview with William Gibson, I'm including the full reading he did from Neuromancer and his reading from his new novel, Spook Country. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. It's not like I'm using, Case heard someone say as he shouldered his way through the crowd around the door of the chat. It's like my body's developed this massive drug deficiency. It was a sprawl voice and a sprawl joke. The Chatsubo was a bar for professional expatriates. You could drink there for a week and never hear two words in Japanese. Rats was tending bar, his prosthetic arm jerking monotonously as he filled a tray of glasses with draft Kirin. He saw a case and smiled, his teeth a webwork of East European steel and brown decay. Case found a place at the bar between the unlikely tan on one of Lonnie Zone's whores and the crisp naval uniform of a tall African whose cheekbones were ridged with precise rows of tribal scars. Wage was in here early with two Joe boys, Rat said, shoving a draft across the bar with his good hand. Maybe some business with you, Case? Case shrugged. The girl to his left giggled and nudged him. The bartender's smile widened. His ugliness was the stuff of legend. In an age of affordable beauty, there was something heraldic about his lack of it. The antique arm whined as he reached for another mug. It was a Russian military prosthesis, a seven-function force-feedback manipulator cased in grubby pink plastic. You are too much the artiste, hair case, Rats grunted. The sound served him as laughter. He scratched his overhang of white-shirted belly with the pink claw. You are the artiste of the slightly funny deal. Milgram was reading the New York Times, finishing his breakfast coffee in a bakery on Bleecker, while Brown conducted a series of quiet, tense, and extremely pissed-off conversations with whoever was supposed to be in charge of watching the IF's known exits when the IF was home sleeping, or whatever the IF did when he was home. Known exits seemed to Milgram to imply that the IF's neighborhood might be riddled with gas-lit opium tunnels and the odd subterranean divan, a possibility Milgram found appealing, however unlikely. Whoever was on the other end of this particular call was not having a good morning. The IF and another male had left the IF's building, walked to the Canal Street subway, entered, and vanished. Milgram knew from having also overheard Brown's half of other conversations that the IF and his family tended to do that, and particularly around subways. Milgram imagined that the IF and his family had the keys to some special kind of subway-based porosity, a way into the cracks and holes and spaces between things. Milgram himself was having a better morning than he recalled having had in some time, and this in spite of Brown's having shaken him awake to translate volapuk. Then he'd fallen back into some dream he could no longer remember, not a pleasant one, something about blue light coming from his skin or beneath it. But all in all, very pleasant to be here in the village this early in the day, having coffee and a pastry and enjoying the time someone had left. Brown didn't like the New York Times. Brown actually didn't like news media of any kind, Milgram had come to understand, because the news conveyed did not issue from any reliable, that was to say, governmental source, nor could it really, under present conditions of war, as any genuine news, news of any strategic import whatever, was by definition precious and not to be wasted on the nation's mere citizenry. Milgram certainly wasn't going to argue with any of that. If Brown had declared the Queen of England to be a shape-shifting alien reptile craving the warm flesh of human infants, Milgram would not have argued. 
But midway through a third-page piece on the NSA and data mining, something occurred to Milgram. Say, he said to Brown, who just ended a call and was looking at his phone as if he wished he knew a way to torture it, this NSA data mining thing. It hung there between them, somewhere above the table. He wasn't in the habit of initiating conversations with Brown, and for good reason. Brown looked from the phone to Milgram, his expression unchanged. I was thinking, Milgram heard himself say, about your IF, about the Volapük. If the NSA can do what it says they can here, then it should be pretty easy to fold a logarithm into the mix that would grab your Volapük and nothing else. You wouldn't even need much of a sample of their family dialect. You could just find half a dozen dialectal examples of the form and shoot for a kind of average. Anything that went through the phone system after that, that had that tag, bingo. You wouldn't need to be changing any more batteries on the IF's coat rack. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.